Hey there, folks. Before we begin today's episode, I wanted to give you a heads up about an exciting event coming up. Our first ever documentary-style episode titled America on the Knife's Edge drops May 15th. Following that premiere, we'll be hosting a live QA session on May 16th where you can join the conversation, ask questions, and share your thoughts on the topics explored in the episode. Visit OutrageOverload.net to sign up for the event. I'd love to see you there. Okay, let's start the show. Welcome to Outrage Overload, a science podcast about outrage and lowering the temperature. This is a bonus episode for MLK Day. should judge people by the, by the content, content of their, of their character, character and not by the color, color of their, of their skin. skin. He said he didn't want people judged on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character. By the content of their character. And the content of their character. The content of their character, mm-hmm. not the, the color, color of their, of their skin. skin. Don't judge us by the color of our skin. I remember, for example, when the ex-attorney general, Mr. Robert Kennedy, said that it was conceivable that in 40 years in America, we might have a Negro president. And that sounded like a very emancipated statement, I suppose, to white people. They were not in Harlem when this statement was first heard. And did not hear, and possibly will never hear, the laughter and the bitterness and the scorn in which the statement was greeted. From the point of view of the man in the Harlem barbershop, Bobby Kennedy only got here yesterday. And now he's already on his way to the presidency. We've been here for 400 years, and now he tells us that maybe in 40 years, if you're good, we may let you become president. The latter is from an earth-shattering speech delivered at Cambridge University in 1965 by James Baldwin, known as the Pin Drop Speech. America drapes MLK quotes over itself like a shiny flag, but the ground beneath those feet still rumbles with unresolved tension, unfinished business of the civil rights movement. We often reduce the civil rights movement to sanitized snapshots, conveniently forgetting its radical demands, its internal conflicts, and its evolution over decades. This selective amnesia doesn't just distort history, it fuels the outrage machine, pits us against each other, and leaves the true story of black resistance hidden in the shadows. And that's what we're going to talk about on this episode of the Outrage Overload podcast. I'm your host, David Beckmeyer, and today we're honoring Martin Luther King Jr. by diving into the heart of these snarls, the hidden threads that connect black activism to the very beating heart of American democracy. 
Our guest today has spent years excavating these hidden narratives. Hi, I'm Hajar Yazdiha, and I am an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Southern California. I'm a faculty affiliate of the Equity Research Institute, and I'm an expert in the politics of inclusion and exclusion, and just published my first book, The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement. So tune in, open your ears, and prepare for a conversation that will crack open the facade and reveal the raw, messy, and inspiring truth. It's time to move beyond the sound bites and embrace the full-color story of American progress, rooted in the enduring legacy of Black resistance with Hejar Yazdia. I, I'm not old enough to be like, a, I wasn't like a political activist in, in his lifetime, but I'm old enough to remember some of the, some of the aspects, you know, when I was a little kid and some of the way real people talked about and thought about. And, you know, he was a very controversial figure. He wasn't beloved by any, you know, the right and even, even the middle to a degree, right? I mean, it was a very controversial figure. Um, you know, and one thing, I, and, and, you know, one thing I remember researching when I was pretty young you know, he would be. In, he was invited to a local college to speak, and it was a, it was a very interesting way that they presented that he was going to speak there. They were like being very careful about how they presented whether they were sort of with him or against him. You know, <laughs> and it was really interesting just to read the kind of language and approach. And and I you know and I remember a lot of people having strong feelings, you know, negative feelings toward him. That and it's so funny now how. Everybody has taken, you know, kind of the, they take the piece they want, they make a meme out of it, and, and they use it. And I think that's a bit of what your your book kind of reminds us about. But I'm not sure if people are really truly, because even now, even the narrative almost always, when nowadays, when people have something, talk about Dr. King in some way, it's almost always presented like he was this beloved person, and everybody was on the same page, you know, and it just wasn't like that. Yes, 100%. I mean, the fact that in the last year of his life, he had this 75% disapproval rating, that's like a lot of Americans who really did not like him and did not, you know, approve of what he stood for, especially since this is a point in his life where he's speaking out against the war in Vietnam, he's speaking out against economic exploitation, and frankly, against capitalism in a lot of ways. And so he was deeply unpopular. And that's exactly, you know, where the the story lies is this question of how do you get from somebody who is so complex, who frankly had a quite radical politics and whose radical politics are to thank for the gains of the civil rights movement, you know, for voting rights legislation, for the Civil Rights Act, um, you know, and then you get from that point to the point now where, like you said, we think of him as this kind of mythologized sort of hero and he's the symbol of love and morality and he's just been reduced to this kind of one thing that completely sanitizes and erases a lot of the hard work and complexity of the the sort of life that he was living and the time he was living in mm -hmm. right yeah i think that's a big piece of it too that you know you you talk to people well, life was pretty good in the 50s it's like was it good for these people you know it's like <laughs> oh i guess maybe not so good you know yes yes exactly what i think also the the tendency to look on the past with nostalgia is i mean it's true all across the board we think about even looking back on our childhoods and it feels like it was such a simpler time 
And it, there is a tendency to forget, right? That is kind of the process of remembrance is always partly about forgetting. But I think what I really draw out in the book is that there is an intentional political project behind it. And so this isn't kind of the natural forgetting that happens with time where certain pieces of the story get left out. This is a political project that intends to distort the past because it does help kind of keep the status quo in place. Right. I mean, there's such irony that that's how his work often gets used to keep the status quo in place when his whole thing was like breaking up the status quo, right? Yes, yes. No, I think that's right. And I do think one of the things I hope readers take away, even thinking about your show, which I think is so helpful for kind of breaking down what the purpose of anger is, you know, especially outrage, which is a form of anger, which is kind of above and beyond. It's overwhelming. It's debilitating. Is that Dr. King himself used anger in very productive ways. So you have to think about anger not as a kind of negative thing in and of itself. It's the anger that's imposed from outside. It's the anger that manipulates. That's the anger we want to avoid. There is the anger that calls you to action, right? The anger that alerts you that something's wrong here. Like it's your call to conscience that this isn't right. Like things should not be this way. And that's the anger that can draw you into the fold where you're willing to act on behalf of a group, of a people, of even just an ideology. The idea that we're better than this, right? That that we have values as a people that supersede all of our differences. Right. And that's where the overload part of it, right, comes in yeah. because, you know, it, exactly. Outrage can be a tool for organizing or for directing, you know, to, to cause action, like you say. But when you're kind of at 10 all the time, you know, it dials up to 11 all the time, then you can't, you can't do that, right? Because you're just mad about everything. And you so, you know, we have to lower the temperature to the point where now, yeah, okay, so here's the things. If we want to be outraged about something, let's be more selective. I mean, maybe people are using selective outrage in a different way. But, you know, I think to be productive or to be effective, you know, you can't do it. You can't just be outraged all the time at everything. It's not sustainable and it's not effective either because you can't direct your energy. So it's some of that too, just being like, maybe I don't need to be about outraged at everything all the time, you know, like the news wants us to be, right? We want to be, and the politicians want us to be everything else, right? Yes, yes. I mean, Dr. King's whole shtick was that, you know, anger is always tied to the possibility of forgiveness and redemption. And so there's always an ethos of love that underlies all of it. So it's not just anger. There is the love and the faith in humanity that is going to get us to the next step. Mm-hmm. And I can get how people are outraged all the time. There's sort of a lot to be outraged about, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it doesn't work to be outraged about a lot of the little things, you know, at the same time. But I, I, you know, I wanted to to expand a little bit more. You know, you said, and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't agree more, but I, I'd love to have the listeners hear from you a little bit more about this on how those black activists have kept democracy alive. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that's a great little story, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Well, I think, the history of Black community is rooted in a collectivism that means that you are bonded beyond your individual lives, that through the force of just great oppression, unimaginable, right, under enslavement, under Jim Crow, even post-Reconstruction violence, I mean, all of it, the idea that we shall overcome, right, that the great anthem, that civil rights anthem, we shall overcome, and I think it's that sort of a history of grassroots resistance where it's in the everyday, the stories that you keep alive within your families, 
the way that there's a form of kinship where you don't have to be blood to take care of one another in communities. It's actually one of the great uh, sort of takeaways in sociology. I think it's one that's kind of misunderstood is that in some of the most impoverished Black neighborhoods, you find stronger social infrastructure. That's the kind of generalized trust between people, the idea that you give, even if you have nothing, than in the most wealthy neighborhoods where folks are divided both physically, you know, by great gates and lots of land, but also socially. They're not interconnected in one another's lives. And that's not to say that poverty is somehow better, right? I would never say that. But I do think it, it is to say something about the resilience that Black communities have had to demonstrate because it's been a form of survival. And that through that, they've come to an understanding that the promise of the United States, this great promissory note that Dr. King talked about, is one that's rooted in everyone's capacity to have a great life, to live this life of dignity, and that you can find it even in the most unlikely places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, how is the this... Um... The memory of the civil rights movement been used to, to sort of fuel outrage in society and politics in your view? Yeah, I mean, it's I think the big piece is the way it's been distorted in the service of creating this perception of threat. So more specifically, there is really the moment where Reagan is grappling. We're going back to the 80s. Reagan is grappling with whether he's going to sign the King holiday into law. You know, he doesn't like King. He never has. He doesn't really stand for civil rights the way that he thinks it's government control and it reduces individual liberties. And he's been very outspoken about this. But enough political pressure amounts where he decides, OK, I'm going to sign it into law, but we're going to remember a really selective version of Dr. King where we're going to just kind of wipe out his radical history. We're going to defang him, essentially. So, so we're going to remember him as the symbol of colorblindness, of a kind of marker of the end of an era of racism. And we're going to sort of use them as a symbol of American exceptionalism. Like, look how far we've come. And I think at surface, sort of face value, it sounds really beautiful because it sounds like, you know, he's sort of bringing King to the fore, nationalizing his memory. And what happens is that unfortunately, then he gets used in the service of a lot of projects to roll back the gains of the civil rights movement. So everything from housing equality, thinking about the justice system, kind of removing piece by piece some of the sort of infrastructure that's been put in place to protect the civil rights of Black Americans. And it becomes a strategy that gets picked up and used by all sorts of groups over time. And so I want to be really clear that the book is not just about right-wing co-optations, right? It's also about how progressive groups do it. And how it can be really harmful, even when they are well-intentioned and trying to remember a quote-unquote true version of King, because of the way that they actually erase the contributions of Black Americans to their own movements. So that's like, again, we could talk about that more, but um, I want to be really clear about that because I, I do see it as a widespread phenomenon, and it's a widespread social crisis. So it's not just a partisan issue. Right. Yeah. And I've, I've, I've talked to black people that talk about they're sort of matter at the way the progressives have co-opted King than, than the, the uh, conservatives have. Um, so so let's flip it around. So how can that memory, you know, how can the, you know, sort of more accurate memory or a better memory of civil rights movement sort of help combat outrage and promote understanding and compassion? 
Yeah, I think that's the big misconception. I think what's happening right now with legislation to, you know, ban books or even to ban racial education. I I believe truly that a lot of these families that are arriving at these school board meetings truly believe that there is some sort of threat. They they truly believe that their children are going to be taught things that might shame them or make them feel bad or you know, almost be developmentally inappropriate. Maybe they think it's too young for children to learn about racism or violence. But I think what I want to emphasize is that the accurate history, the truthful, the complex, the messy history can free us. So it can be transformative. And that's what the research shows is that digging in to the messiness of the past, the painful things that have happened And even understanding that one's own family, one's own lineage might be rooted in some of these violent projects can actually free you in a way because you see what's happened before and you are committed to not recreating that. You're committed to doing something new. So I think there's this conception that, you know, shame or guilt are negative feelings that we should just, we should just avoid altogether, right? We don't want our kids to feel that way. And I get that, right? I'm a mom. I get it. But the opposite side of guilt is action. And so I think that's really the piece I want to drive home is that if we want to have kind of a robust democracy where we are really trying to get our children civically engaged, we're trying to remind them that they're part of a populace and that we're part of a social contract, right? We owe things to one another. I think that is one of the ways to do it is to really fight for honest histories that make sure we're not just kind of recreating what we've already done and that we're going somewhere new. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me how you people can sort of take some of this personally when they don't take other things personally, like, you know, the Salem witch hunts, let's say, or whatever, right? Do I feel super guilty about that personally? Like, no, that's a thing the society did. I mean, it's kind of interesting that we have we do this more where we sort of, we feel it was somehow personally we were involved in this thing before. Um, and we take, you know, we want to, we get really guilty about it. And I, it seems like there's better ways to present some of this that don't create some of that. But so are you concerned that this book, now that we're on that topic, will be, you know, banned in Florida, for instance, or will be seen as critical race theory or whatever? That's so funny. I, well, I say jokingly that I would be honored because I've actually, <laughs> I've seen colleagues whose books were on those lists, like have total sellout, like they just sold so many books after this. So that's kind of fun. Um, but no, if I'm speaking more seriously, I think I, I would like to think that the book would be taken at face value and would not be kind of lumped in. But then again, some of the books that have been lumped in really, for one thing, are not even critical race theory. They're purely history. Um, and I think for another, it's such a politicized project. It's almost it's easy to want to almost like poo poo it unless I think you live in Florida and it affects you directly um, or Arkansas at this point. It's easy to poo-poo it and say like, oh, that's just silly. It's just education. Uh, but I think it's it's something we should take quite, quite seriously because one of the things I do talk about in the book is the real consequences and dangers of revisionist history. And in this case, it's not just revisionist history. It's not just, for example, teaching that there were benefits to slavery for Black Americans. It's also a pure wiping out, right? It's an erasure of history. So it's the refusal to acknowledge certain things that have happened. And again, just on a human level, I understand the impulse, especially when it's driven by the outrage machine, especially when it's driven by the perception that this is all kind of a political project from the left and trying to indoctrinate your children. But I think that the truth is we have to give ourselves more credit than that. Um, You know, I think about, I think there's a podcast that actually has this 
mantra. But I always think we can do hard things, right? We can face difficult histories as a people. We can confront them. And truly, there is no reconciliation without reckoning. So I think once we accept that, that we have to reckon fully with the past, we have to confront it, we have to climb into it and feel all of that discomfort. And that's how we move forward. And that's how we begin to heal. Yeah, it definitely, like you said, it's sort of it's you've got to do that freeing, freeing exercise. Yeah, so I, I want to. I'll just wrap up again. If you want to expand on it more about, I mean, I think this connecting across our shared humanity and what role, um, what we're discussing today play, plays in that. Yeah, I think that is the central piece. So for me, the legacies of the civil rights movement, the ones that we should be remembering actively, it should be an active practice of remembrance every day, are the legacies of the value of a critical education and a spiritual education. So those are the two big pieces for me. And I want to be really clear because I think, especially from progressives who are really part of the kind of the outrage, the outrage against the right for this legislation, for rolling back civil rights, for all of this. I think a lot of the outrage can um, be sort of submerged in this idea that people just need to be educated, that, oh, those people are just ignorant. They just don't know better. If we just teach them, then they'll understand. I always want to shy away from that. The people on the right, you know, well-educated, right? Just as well-educated. And I want to be really clear that PhDs don't mean you're well-educated. <laughs> like <laughs> you could be a fool, right? So I think that's the big thing is formal education for me is not enough, though I certainly think we should have a much stronger educational system for everyone. But I do think a critical education, that's the that's the education that helps you ask questions, right? That's the that's the education that helps you think about the deeper question of why, the question of how do I know what I know, and really getting to the root of it, being able to evaluate evidence, you know, and that means somebody presents you with step, like random statistics. You don't just take them at face value. You're really trying to understand what lies beneath and, and how sort of the research design was built. All of these questions are part of a critical education. But then I think the other big piece for me is the spiritual education and I say this as somebody who was not raised with religion, um, and I've really come to understand that spirituality is something much greater than religion. It's really about our connection to one another as human beings. It's our connection to the natural world and to beyond. And that's the piece that I think would save a lot of us, is if we were able to move out of our immediate reactionary outrage and towards a sort of interconnection with the people around us, understanding that the world is much bigger than our individual lives and, and what feels so glaring to us in those moments. But I also think it's the way forward is just building relationships on the ground. Yeah, that, that's so true. Yeah, that, that's that's great. Thank you so much for that. Well, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I mean, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I love your show. Oh, thank you. Take care. Right, take care. Bye-bye. That is it for this episode of the Outrage Overload podcast. For links to everything we talked about on this episode, visit outrageoverload.net. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Blog. You can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at Outrage Overload. We have a Facebook page slash Outrage Overload and a Facebook group. If you like the show, tell your friends about it. 
maybe think about giving us a review on Apple or your favorite podcast player. And check back in a couple of weeks for a brand new episode. <laughs>